Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Earlier this week, I saw a tweet by Father Andrew Stephen Damick commenting on a tweet from Desiring God, the website of John Piper, a very well-renowned Reformed Baptist. The Desiring God tweet went like this. God cares more about your happiness than you do. He's so serious about your joy that he threatens hell if you refuse to find it in him. Father Damick commented that this is horrifying theology. And horrifying theology that should remind us that not all Christians believe the same things. And to the extent that one can discern another's theology from a two-sentence statement like that, I think the horrifying nature of it makes it fit for the upcoming Halloween celebration. First of all, God, first of all, hell is not God's threat. It's a reality brought about by the fall of the angels and man. Hell is not God's creation, it's ours. And we need to close the and all we need to do to close the gates of hell are for all of us fallen men and all the fallen angels to turn back to God for good. In fact, some Orthodox theologians go so far as to say that heaven and hell are really the same thing, simply the impending return of God, not as a man, but in his full glory. And when that comes to pass, whether we experience heaven or hell will be a self-evident judgment and reflection of the choice we made to follow God or follow the devil in the world. Depending on that, we will either feel the warm heavenly love of finally being at home, or we will instead feel the intense heat of God's light grating on the darkness we refuse to relinquish. So certainly hell is a scary thing, but we should not view it as some sort of punishment or threat. The second issue, and the one I want to focus more on today, is about God's care for our happiness, especially in the way the tweet ties it to our salvation. Scripture is full of talk about joy, but be happy is more of a Bobby McFerrin verse than a Bible verse. So perhaps your first question would be whether there is a difference between joy and happiness. And the answer is that although in casual speaking we tend to think of joy and happiness as the same thing, there is an important distinction. Even psychologists would say that joy is something internal, while happiness is something external. Happiness is based on situations, events, people, places, things, and thoughts. Happiness is connected to statements like, someday when I meet the right person, then I'll be happy. Or when I land my dream job, then I'll be happy. Or one day when I have more money, then I'll be happy. Or whatever, then I'll be happy. If we focus on happiness, our life will be a roller coaster. Joy is something internal. It comes from getting off that emotional roller coaster and making peace with the external circumstances around us. Joy is something that radiates from us rather than an external wind that blows us around. I would go so far as to say that when defined that way, the Bible says pretty much that happiness is one of the last things we'd actually want. It's of this world. It's always fleeting. It's always there to let you down. Just ask Job, who, had he not had internal joy, would have been completely destroyed by the events Satan brought upon him. 
So why do most of us not feel particularly joyful? Because we're dead inside, still reeling from the effects of the fall and our own sins. Something dead can't radiate, can't do anything, frankly. Life is needed to be in control rather than to be controlled. And that brings us to today's gospel, in which Jesus raises the only son of the widow of Nain from the dead. We can unpack a lot in this short story, but I want to focus on a couple of things. First, this woman was a widow who had already lost her husband and now her only son. In first century Judea, this was essentially a death sentence for her. As a widow, you needed someone to take care of you. There, was even the ba- there wasn't even the basic social security there is today, which so many struggle to get by on. This is why one of the key charities of the earliest New Testament church was caring for widows. And this is why we see Jesus charge John to care for his mother from the cross. Mary was a widow by this point, and she was likewise about to lose her only son. The next thing that I want to point out is the authority that Jesus has here. He simply says, arise, and a dead man is now alive again. Other people are raised from the dead in the Bible, but their stories are quite different. In a type of this story, Elijah resurrects the son of Zarephath's widow in 1 Kings. But does he just say, arise, and it happens? No. He cries out in prayer to the Lord and stretched himself upon the child three times. And chapter 17, verse 2, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he was revived. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha resurrects the son of the Shumanite woman. You may recall she was barren a source of great shame in those days. And Elisha prophesied to her that her kindness and generosity would be rewarded with a child in a year's time. And indeed, she and her husband had a child. But sometime later, while working in the field, her miraculous child dies. And similar to the last story, Elisha doesn't just say, get up. He walks to and fro, probably praying silently, and then goes up and stretches himself upon the child who then sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. For Jesus, there are two other raisings from the dead. First, Jairus' daughter. You may recall someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. For she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. And the second one, Lazarus. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. 
And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But none of, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. But Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing round, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In each instance for Jesus, there's no need to pray. No need for a physical laying upon. Just simply arise or come out. Jesus has internal authority over life and death, and he doesn't need to ask God for help because he is God. Jesus is full of the Spirit. He's full of joy. And yet, even for a brief moment, here we see he's also a man, subject to the externalities of happiness. Jesus wept over Lazarus, the very thing he told the widow of Nain not to do, the very thing he told the weepers outside of Jairus' daughter's house say, don't weep. Jesus wept over Lazarus. Jesus here standing in the widow of Nain's position, the family of Jairus' daughter's position, having lost someone dear to him, can't follow that command. And although Jesus becomes subject briefly to that emotion, he doesn't retire to his room and grieve for months. No, he lets joy take control again. He has so much of that, nothing can shake it. And then he goes and he heals Lazarus. So how do we get that joy? The Bible tells us it comes through tribulation, that it comes through taking up our cross and following Jesus. This is part of the shocking news of the gospel. To have joy, you need to be ready to stop being happy. Not being happy isn't necessarily required. But I don't know about you, Facing trials and temptations is not usually how I plan my vacations. But St. James says to count our trials as pure joy. St. Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is in part joy. And to acquire the singular fruit of the Spirit, of which joy is a part, we must acquire God. And when we acquire God, we will be coming after him. But how do we chase after him? Well, as Jesus says in the Gospels, by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. We acquire God through loving him. And how? As Jesus says in the Gospels, if you love me, keep my commandments. So God does not threaten hell because he cares about our happiness. Rather, God loves us and offers us himself so that we can be filled with real joy. He offers himself to us so that we can radiate his joy to those around us, so that we can bring life to others figuratively and literally, just as Elijah and Elisha did. But to do so, we need to fill ourselves up with the Spirit until our cup runneth over, until we're so full of the Spirit that even our bones in the grave will raise someone from the dead, as Elisha's did in 2 Kings 13, 21. 
Do you have the spirit in your bones? Or are yours like mine, still lying in the valley of dry bones? Even if the latter, I have good news for you. The Son of Man, Jesus, has come, and he's breathed new life into those bones, your bones. God has put his Holy Spirit in those bones. The seed of the fruit of the Spirit is planted in your bones, and it's God's promise to us that we can be filled with the Spirit. But we must till our ground through overcoming trials and tribulations by setting our sights on Jesus and following his way, his joy, and not seeking after a fleeting happiness. As we seek that this week, let's join our prayer with St. Paul for us from the epistle today. St. Paul says, I desire that you not faint at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I now bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the might by his Spirit, in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly all above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.